As Unitarian Universalists, we find wisdom and inspiration in many places. Today's wisdom comes from Cheryl Martin, a 58-year-old Madison resident. Cheryl was interviewed by the Wisconsin State Journal in 2016 for a series on homelessness. At the time, she had been homeless for 18 months, even though she was working more than 50 hours a week at two low-paying jobs. She was a clerk at the Arby's restaurant on Park Street and a night janitor at East Town Mall. These are her words. A lot of people think of the homeless as alcoholics or drug abusers. I'm neither. I'm out here working. I'm not getting anything handed to me. The problem in this city is rental housing. I've put in more than 50 applications. Nothing. A lot of them say you have to make three times the monthly rent. So if the rent is $800, you have to make $2,400. How many people could do that? I live for more than a month on the streets, and I also stay at the Salvation Army shelter some nights. When I double up with a friend, I have to sneak in the back door. The landlord can't know. It's no way to live. The city needs to stop building all of these fancy apartments and start building four-bedroom units for families. Let one government official live like a homeless person for one week, and things would change. I live one day at a time. I wake up every day and thank God I have one more day to try to put this together. And a postscript. Later that year, Cheryl moved into Rethke Terrace, a 60-unit building for homeless people off East Washington Avenue, developed with federal tax credits and city and county money. She pays a flat rate of $3.83 a month. Good morning. John, if you can't hear me, raise your hand, okay? I know I'm not good at eating the microphone. I'm really happy to be here this morning, and I get to talk about some of my favorite subjects to some of my favorite people, so it's pretty exciting, and it's actually the first time I've ever been up here in our 25 years, so I don't know how that happened. But um, So um, I'm an architect and planner, and... This project was, I would say, was pretty much the greatest opportunity that I've had in my whole career uh, to make a difference and to uh, take a different level of challenge uh, it, from my normal work. Usually I'm doing a, a house or a, a store or a, a church, but for, you know, a single-use type of uh, place. And I always try to, uh, I think all architects, um, you know, we're trying to make a, a little model of utopia in every building we do. We try to make something that's different, better than the world is now. Um, but when you get to do it at the level of a village, um, there's just way more you can do that to, to really make a little microcosm of, you know, what I'd like to see the world be and like what our group wants to see the world be. And so it was a great match between this client and myself. Uh, our values, I think, lined up, and, uh, and I think they're pretty familiar to 
uh, the values that we talk about here. Um, you know, it's, fi it's five years since the village opened, but the story prior to that is really where all the action was. Uh, the, the village, I mean, the group started on September 17, 2011, when Occupy Wall Street uh, occurred and many other places, including Madison, had Occupy groups that uh, occupied some public space and um, took action to address the extreme economic disparities that are uh, characteristic of our modern world here. And um, uh, that, in the case of, of Madison, um, we gathered at Reynolds Park and spent the weekend there and many of my fellow progressives that I knew from the uprising at the Capitol and Walkerville and other places showed up. But also the homeless people, some of whom I got to know for the first time at the Capitol during the uprising were there and others that I met during the Walkerville encampment around the Capitol. You know, in both of those cases, arrangements had to be made to accommodate the homeless people who are normally there that we were displacing as houses pretending to be in need of encampment. And uh, so that was an interesting dynamic. And when we got to Reynolds Park, that same issue rose up. And it was really kind of caught me off guard to have otherwise progressive people that I know and love have a problem with the, the thinking it was not legitimate to have homeless people as part of that gathering and part of this movement when they probably have the more standing than any of us houses that are drove there and get to go to our home to our house whenever we wanted to. Um, so that was interesting. And what happened out of that kind of weird dissonance is uh, pretty promptly all the folks that were had a place to, to live went home and we were left with this um, residual group of all homeless people and their supporters. And that's really how the, the uh, nomadic community called Occupy Madison morphed into uh, a social action group specifically focused on the question of where can we live? And we tested that question for a better part of three years before we were able to actually come home down the block here. Uh, and there were some really harrowing parts of that. We spent, uh, early on, it was you know September when that program started, and the group first moved to the top of State Street, and that worked out okay until Freak Fest, when that area was gonna be fenced off, so then they, we had to move, and someone had the brilliant idea of moving to the entrance bridge to Monona Terrace. And that got somebody's attention in the city county building. And so Paul Soglin actually signed a proclamation that per, uh, permitted us to camp on the 800 block of East Washington, where the Galaxy Building is now, Festival Foods. And uh, ended up being there for about six months through a pretty harsh winter. And that was our first dance with experimental shelter, trying to provide for ourselves. and. Um, and it was a test of us as a, what I call citizen direct action and, and um, community self-help. We were not asking for any government help except for the ability, you know, permission to be on that property. Uh, and eventually we were driven off because 
I think the mayor never expected us to last through the winter and to do what we did. But this was an enterprising group. And um, so we continued to be uh, kind of roam around the county. Uh, in the summer, we could go to the county parks and camp there. Uh, but the, the second winter, uh, we started back. We had about 10 days back at the East Washington parcel, which got the mayor plenty exercised. And we were evicted from there. So someone had another brilliant idea, which was to go up to the conservation park next to the Dane County Social Services castle. And we had an encampment there for 10 or 12 days. Uh, and that led to some very interesting interactions with Lynn Green and her entourage coming down like the king and, or the queen and her uh, entourage to read us the edict and uh, get no response and turn around and go back up into the castle. That happened several times. Finally, the county got uh, impatient with us, and they, this is one of the more shameful moments. Uh, the county sent 30-some deputies and 12 county trucks, and they basically surrounded the encampment, and partly to prevent anyone seeing what they were doing. And they, uh, they took each camp, uh, each tent, uh, and put it on a tarp and rolled it all up, put a number on it, and put a similar duct tape number on the person that was identified to be the resident of that tent. And the whole schmear was hauled over to Token Creek Park, where we basically were interned for a pretty nasty winter uh, at the behest of the county, and five miles from the nearest uh, bus stop. Um, so it reminded me of the Japanese internment that happened back in the 40s. Um, so, and that was a pretty harsh winter, and uh, at the end of that we started looking for places to be. We were pretty well done trying to prove that there was no legal place to be, and public lands or any public place uh, that you had to have a lease title or mortgage to be legal to live in the state or county of Dane here. And so uh, we had some dealings with Kwa Vang, who's a very interesting uh, Hmong uh, immigrant uh, and uh, resettlement. He does uh, refugee resettlements and he offered us a piece of land to camp on during the month gap between when we were thrown out of Trogan Creek Park and the county campgrounds would open the following season. Um, and we took a look at his uh, building that he had up on Fordham Avenue and we had an interesting meeting here where a hundred Maple Bluff residents and uh, others showed up. We, we've, we've picked a site that would make three municipalities uncomfortable all at once. And uh, and that we really heard about it. <laughs> uh, that was to do a transitional housing in this building. It's kind of behind the Bonzo uh, restaurant. Um, and during that time, then we were looking. Uh, we had someone looking for a, a site to to found a village. We had heard about and done some looking into what some of these other uh, homeless encampments that are particularly in the Northwest. There's a cluster of them. Um, and Austin and other places are have notable villages that are uh, we went to learn about, and then we've, uh, we got lucky, and this parcel 
down the block came available and it was at a price that we actually could do um, along with our private supporters. And so uh, we executed that in early January of 14 and by uh, November of 14th we had worked through the whole uh, process uh, with the city and uh, and the whole construction process to build the village that you see there today. Um, it was a pretty remarkable effort. Uh, uh, you know, it started out uh, as a completely unreasonable proposition because what we proposed to do was not legal. Um, and the city covered themselves by uh, ruling that what we wanted to do, which was to build tiny houses and craft items on the property, did not fit the, the by right zoning of artisan workshop. That was just so that they could maintain jurisdic continuing jurisdiction. So they said that that's an industrial activity to hand build houses, so we had to go through a whole uh, plan development zoning, uh, rezoning process and uh, uh, through a, what's called conditional use permit. And we only got 52 conditions put on us for going through that. But that was at the easy part at the end. Uh, we started with a meeting here, one of five community meetings that we did that uh, where we, we worked to move the public's uh, opinion and, and uh, of us and to allay the fears and uh, prejudices that were rampant here, uh, uh, but it worked. We did a process that was more open and more inclusive than any developers ever done. So now we're held up as an example to beat the private developers over the head with, this is how you do it. Um, so we, that was kind of you know, getting outside the box and, and doing something um, to a point where no one could criticize. And we, f we found the public opinion shift from about 75% totally opposed in the first meeting to we got down to two sort of token objectors at the end of that whole process of about five months. Um, and they had changed their reasons for objection because we had actually effectively answered all of their original ones. Um, related to that was the whole regulatory process with the city and uh, the tiny houses that we have don't fit any legal category. Um, they certainly can't be legal under the building code. The city tried to talk to the state about would they uh, consider this an RV park? Would they consider this a campground? Uh, and the state, despite being under the walker thumb, did us favors and said, no, we don't think so. So what the city uh, was really faced with doing was to sit down with us and to create a new category. And so part of how we got it going here was to create a new uh, category uh, and the definition of a portable shelter unit that's not subject to those other not really pertinent codes. And so we, we broke, you know, we created an area of freedom from the regulatory regime. You know, zoning and building codes are, look benign, but they're really Im embedded with lots of uh, social uh, normative stuff. That's how we, ha we keep segregation happening and how we keep homelessness happening is the requirements in there that are hard to reach. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud that we got through to those uh, breakthroughs and that allowed us to, to build this community uh, that operates really with uh, heart and uh, 
So, and that, that's what was really the key here. I could talk about the design, but we can do that down at the tour. Um, uh, but the, uh, the key to this was changing hearts and minds. Otherwise, you can't even have the conversation. Uh, but we did manage to do that. Thanks. Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? Okay. Thanks. I'll try to speak a little louder. Is that better? Okay, I'm, I'm just going to give a little bit of my story um, up to the village. Um, prior to becoming homeless, um, I had lived in a, in a cooperative housing um, situation on a farm between Jefferson and Fort Atkinson, and I was commuting every day to Madison for work. Um, I was living paycheck to paycheck, and um, one day my car broke down, and, and it was not fixable, so I um, had to, it became apparent very quickly that, um, that I wasn't able to afford rent and, and a car payment. So, um, so I bought a van to make it into a, into a mobile house. Um, and I had lived in my van for about a year, um, between the Walmart South side Walmart parking lot. And then I moved over to Dutch mills park and ride. And that's, uh, where I lived. Um, while I was, because I didn't have a lot of entertainment or things to do after work, I would uh, read quite frequently. And I saw um, newspaper articles about Occupy Madison, um, wanting to start this village and having neighborhood meetings. And and so um, then there was a call sent out for help, for volunteer help. So I, not having anything to do, started showing up and... and um, and it was right at the beginning of building the village. And so a lot of that was just um, the first part. They were working on the um, shop. The shop was pretty um, contaminated with mold and, and different auto chemicals. So, so um, I, had, I had an interest in gardening and growing food. I grew up in an agricultural community. So... Um, so I felt very comfortable building the raised garden beds. And then I developed some other skills with the roads, building the roads that are in the village. Um, it took me a while to become a member of, of Occupy Madison, mainly because, um, I don't initiate conversations with people. So I just show up and, and work and, um, but then um, in, in November of 2000, 2015, um, we had a ribbon-cutting ribbon ceremony and um, opened the village, and, and, um, and I became a member of Occupy Madison and, and shortly thereafter a board member of Occupy Madison, Inc., Um, just as a kind of bat history of the village, 
Um, in the spring of 2000, when we moved in, uh, I moved in and my neighbor Russ moved in in February of 2015. And there were two other people living there. Um, and we were kind of just uh, not really organized. And we just kind of, it was kind of like an apartment, more of an apartment building type atmosphere. But um, in the spring of 2015, it became very apparent that we couldn't operate having having shared resources and um, shared spaces in a traditional like apartment or or small community manner so we um, we started having weekly residence meetings to to kind of set the expectations and guidelines that we wanted to live by and um, and to this day we still have uh, weekly resident meetings on Sunday Sunday afternoons and to make decisions or to see how uh, things are going. Um, something that helped with that was um, my experience with intentional communities and cooperative housing um, places. We, we're kind of trying to model, model ourselves after these, these different models, but we kind of customized kind of customized how we did things. Um, uh, I just want to talk a couple about a couple points about what makes us unique. Um, as Ed, Ed, as Ed had referred to, there's, there's several, several villages out West that have, um, that are, have tiny houses that for homeless people, um, but the way we did it is kind of we have some very unique things, and I call them the tiny house village Madison style. Um, one of those things that makes us unique is that we're the we're still the only tiny house village in the United States that um, that is in a residential neighborhood. Most of the villages are are in industrial or rural areas, and um, this is very important to us because we have access to transportation. We're right along the bus line. Um, the bus stop is right across the street, and also um, food sources. Another thing that makes us unique is the way we're organized. Most of the villages have some type of management um, structure, some kind of hierarchy where either through a property manager or a board of directors. And while we do have a board of directors for our, for the nonprofit, um, it's kind of in name only and, and just to act as an interface in between the financial and, and legal things that we need to do. Um, we, we always try to maintain a, an egalitarian values. Um, especially in labor and resources, um, sharing is is a big. It can be very stressful, but um, but we kind of rethought about how we, the whole idea of ownership, and um, holding holding things in common instead of privately. Um, all of all the residents there have been employed unemployed at one time or another. But um, as of right now, we're all employed, and the majority of us don't receive public assistance. So, so we've kind of taken the burden off of the, 
off of uh, taxpayers and, and our systems. Um, and then, and then for operating, co for operating costs, we, um, to pay that we build, we build like different, uh, woodworking items. Um, some people do, it's very entrepreneur centered. Um, some people do jewelry and different craft objects and then we sell them in the, sell them in our store and, um, and then any donations that are received can go to our next phase, which is um, building a kitchen, a community room, another shower, washer, dryer, and uh, adding five more, four more houses, five more people. Um, in conclusion, and in honor of, uh, of being, being in the neighborhood for five years and also as a celebration of our neighbors and people who have supported us, we're having a, um, a day of festivities on November 16th from noon to eight. And we'd like to invite you all to come join us. Thank you.